Well, I eventually uh, will be in Isaiah 56. So you might want to put a bookmark or a finger there. At Grace Bible Church, you need to bring bookmarks. That's helpful. But for now, turn to Matthew 6, and then we'll be in Matthew 13. So Matthew 6, Matthew 13, then we'll go to our primary text of Isaiah 56 and 57 uh, this evening. We're going to be spending a number of weeks talking about prayer, and I'll get more specific about it here in a moment as we uh, progress on this evening. But I have a very personal reason uh, as the shepherd of Grace Bible Church for preaching on prayer, and that is through interacting with some of you and making observations, one of my goals and one of my jobs is to try to gauge where we need to be bolstered and where we need to be uplifted. And I just say this as a, as a father would say to his children that um, last year in 2017, the worst attended service in our church was the annual prayer service that we have here on Sunday night that we do every year. Um, and, and that's something that caused me great consternation and concern. And so that tells me that we need to be shepherded in that area. Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir because you're here on Sunday night saying, hey, I've been here, you know, and I understand that. So my goal for you is to encourage others, encourage yourself in prayer. And so that's one of my hopes is that we can understand uh, really the the high priority of prayer. And, And to a certain degree, we all understand this. Countless books and articles have been written on prayer, urging us to pray But we do need this constant reminder. This is one of those topics that I categorize that I call PEG sermons. And you've heard me talk about this. PEG stands for prayer, evangelism, and giving. That those are the things that we tend to degrade in, that we tend toward less and less faithfulness, not toward more and more faithfulness. Now, I don't know any Christian that would deny the importance of prayer. I don't know any believer who would say, ah, prayer isn't that big of a deal. In fact, I think that much like a newborn baby cries out with that first gasp of air in its lungs, that a new Christian instinctively cries out to the Lord, that we don't have to be told to do that, that that's just something that we do. But our prayers can at times remain like the crying baby, fairly focused on circumstantial needs, focused on the ripples in the pond that emanate just from my own life. And one of my burdens as your shepherd is to periodically challenge all of us to elevate and to advance our prayer lives such that prayer for you is rich, it's instinctive, it's continual, and it's expansive. It's bigger than just praying about my own needs and that it can reflect our theology. Now, the greatest teacher on prayer, of course, is the Lord Jesus himself. Early in his ministry, when he was healing and ministering and teaching in the northern region of Galilee, such that great crowds were quickly following him. Of course, this was his plan, so that he could gather them together and then proclaim the gospel to them. And so Matthew 5, we'll be in Matthew 6 shortly, but beginning in Matthew 5, it records that when a large crowd had gathered, he went up on the mountain, basically on the side of a hill, so that he could be above them, and he sat down to teach them. And he taught what has come to be popularly known as the Sermon on the Mount, which is the most debated and most studied portion of Scripture in all of the Bible, by the way. The Sermon on the Mount is preached at a level that a child can understand, and yet it's so profound that a hundred lifetimes wouldn't be enough time to really understand it because there's, there's thought-provoking truths that make you think, make you wrestle. Uh, for example, in one sentence, 
his opening words, he destroys the false works-based man-invented Judaism that had developed in Israel, and he gives the qualification to enter the kingdom of heaven. All at one time, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He just put a stick of dynamite under unbiblical Judaism and blew it apart in one sentence. But the sermon quickly poses a problem for us. The standards are impossible to meet. He says, for example, in Matthew 5, 22, that anyone who's angry in his mind at another person is bound for hell. I can't attain that standard precisely. And so the kingdom qualification is blessed are the poor in spirit, those who know that they can't attain to that standard. But the sermon has another challenging aspect to it. It contains what look like contradictions. There there are things in here that force the reader, force the listener to think, to wrestle, to discern, to grasp these truths. And it's a particular and I would say peculiar Hebrew way of teaching. And that is to present paradoxical truths that both sides are opposite and both sides are true at the same time. And so it makes you deliberate. It makes you contemplate. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Look with me at Matthew 6 verses 7 and 8. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Now, look at Matthew 7, verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. What does that sound like? Repetition and persistence in prayer. How about Matthew 7, 1 and 2? He says, judge not that you be not judged for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now look at verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them or judge them by their fruits. Well, which one is it? It's yes, it's both and. Or my favorite one, look at Matthew 5 verse 16. We'll start in verse uh, 14. You are the light of the world. The city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. And this is the crux of the matter. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. But look at chapter six, verse one. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And this is meant to make you scratch your head and say, what is he talking about? And you have to use context. You have to use situation. You have to use wisdom. You have to use prayer. You have to use discernment. And so what this sermon is meant to do is absolutely erode your confidence in yourself. Erode your confidence in your ability to come up with anything spiritual at all and to drive you to Christ and drive you to his kingdom in particular, which many would argue is the theme of the Sermon on the Mount, is the kingdom of God. That phrase is used seven times here, the the idea of the kingdom. And one of those mentions of the kingdom occurs when Jesus teaches true believers how to pray. And when he gives his model prayer, and now we find ourselves in Matthew 6, verse 9. Jesus is teaching his disciples. He says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And it's in this model prayer that we receive the admonition to pray kingdom prayers. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's, a, there's an implied uh, command here almost. There's an implied uh, hope. Your kingdom come, let your kingdom come. That's what you're requesting here. That one day may the obedience on earth be equal to the obedience in heaven. And why would this be the case? Because the kingdom of God has come to earth. Now, what does it mean that the kingdom has come? That's a, that's a big topic. Let me simplify it for you. The simplest answer is found in Zechariah 14.9. You don't have to turn there. Just listen. This is a prophetic chapter that describes the coming of Jesus Christ in great detail. And here's what the kingdom coming means. Zechariah 14.9, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. Is the Lord king over all the earth right now? No. The prince of the power of the air, according to Ephesians 2, 2, is king over the, all the earth. And so we will look forward to the day when the Lord is king. On that day, the Lord will be on the earth and he will be the one God who is worshipped. That mankind will know Christ. Now, one of the shocking features about this phrase, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. One of the shocking features is that Jesus is instructing us to pray for something that's already 100% certain. Did you catch that? It's already going to happen. And I want to suggest several reasons for this. First of all, God has ordained the end. The kingdom will come. But he's also ordained the means by which the kingdom will come, and that is the prayers of the saints. That that is how the kingdom will come. What is the very last prayer of the Bible? Amen, come Lord Jesus. And so we have that model prayer. Another reason that we're instructed to pray for something that's already a foregone conclusion, this fulfills Colossians 3, 1 and 2. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not things that are on earth. And so it fulfills that admonition to think beyond our earthly schema here and go into heaven. Another reason that this might be here for us to pray a prayer that's already a 100% foregone conclusion, it gives us the very good habit of seeking God's kingdom before our own needs. Did you notice the order here? Our Father in heaven, we start with him. Holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then give us this day our daily bread. What a good habit in prayer. It keeps us from shaping our faith merely in terms of God's interaction with me. But we understand that we're part of the overall scope of redemption. And so for the next several weeks, we're going to examine how to pray kingdom prayers. And we're going to let these last chapters in Isaiah, as we kind of come to the climactic portion of that prophetic book, they'll be our instructor. And so tonight, we'll be in Isaiah 56 and 57, but don't go there yet. We're still going to Matthew 13 first. But I want to convince you that there are benefits to praying kingdom prayers. First of all, 
this matures your faith beyond the status quo. In fact, I would urge you, since you are the faithful Sunday night attenders, I would urge you over the next number of weeks, if you will keep even some basic notes, you will have for the rest of your life a primer on how to pray prayers that are far beyond yourself and that are eternal and glorious and kingdom oriented. And so if you'll apply this to your life, you'll be matured far beyond what you have, I think, in the past in your prayer life. Another benefit for us is that it it promotes an evangelistic focus to prayer. The the saved in this age are going to enter the kingdom in the next age. And so the irony here is is that praying for the future gives us greater greater sense of urgency to pray for the present, to pray for those who need to be kingdom citizens. There's one more benefit. It gives you the comfort that God will sovereignly work in your life. Why? Why? I think there's a great paradox here that the more time you spend praying about the big picture, the more accepting you are of your own little picture, that you can be okay with whatever happens. So Isaiah has brought us to this point. As he writes from Isaiah 40 onward now, he's writing to the future Israelite exiles in Babylon, but the Babylonian exile is really just a a little model of the bigger kingdom picture that God is painting in Isaiah. And countless times from Isaiah 40 on, you're probably tired of hearing me say this, we've said such and such a verse or section gives hope to the exiles in Babylon, but it seems to go farther than that and it seems to paint a picture of the future. We spent from Isaiah 49 to 55 looking at God's plan for Israel and the nations, nations, and now the rest of the book is like, it's accelerating to this fever pitch of excitement mixed with sobering information about his kingdom plan, which he announced all the way back at the very beginning of the book. This is really tying the bow up very neatly here. In chapter one, he denounced the sin of Israel, but immediately he gives comfort. And what kind of comfort is it? It's kingdom comfort. It's comfort about the coming day. He says in Isaiah two, just listen, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That is immediately a picture of the millennial reign of Christ on earth. That's the the upfront hope that God gives. And all through Isaiah, he's been consistent And now Isaiah begins the concluding section of the book, a a section which one writer rightly calls the book of the anointed conqueror. It is the book of the anointed conqueror from chapter 56 to the end. And the Lord Jesus called us to pray for the coming of his kingdom so we can take great instruction and inspiration from the remainder of Isaiah. As we look at the first lesson on how to pray kingdom prayers tonight, we're just simply talking about Pray for the coming division of mankind. That we are to pray for the coming division of mankind. And this is where I want to begin, why I want to begin here in Matthew 13 first. Because Jesus made this coming division crystal clear. He made it abundantly obvious 
this is something that we need to understand and control with. My microphone bleeding out on us there. The beauty of technology. Jesus made this abundantly clear, and far from the far from the false picture of Jesus that he just came to be a nice guy and he came to be the savior of the entire world, meaning every single person. That seems odd to me that Jesus is to be called the savior of those who will end up in hell. That's not true. He came to be the savior of all who would believe in him. That's why we are staunchly limited atonement. Jesus did not die on the cross for the benefit of those who were in hell. That's not logical. He says there is a coming division. Matthew 13, verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go out and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bundle them, bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. This is the famous parable of the wheat and tares, that the weeds at first resemble the wheat, but eventually they'll be able to be told apart. Now, his disciples didn't understand what he was talking about exactly, and so they asked for commentary. Incidentally, in this whole speech that he gives here, he gave numerous uh, parables, but the disciples were particularly intrigued with this one, and they wanted more information, and so we get it in verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels." Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So the coming kingdom will be established with a great division of mankind. So I would suggest that part of praying your kingdom come, that we too ought to pray for this coming division of mankind. So now we can get to Isaiah 56. And as you look to Isaiah 56, I want to suggest that there's three requests that we make of the Lord in this coming division of mankind, praying for that coming division. Three requests. And so we see these illustrated here in Isaiah 56. Here's our first request. And that is for the outcasts to be brought in. For the outcasts to be brought in. Isaiah 56, beginning in verse 1, and I'll read through verse 8. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. 
Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Now, staying true to the original audience, the exiles in Babylon, all that's described in these final chapters would theoretically have come true if Israel had been faithful when they returned. But ultimately they didn't. For example, Ezra 9 and 10 records that those returning from exile would betray the Lord once again. They would fall into great sin. They would be intermarrying with the, the idol-worshiping pagan neighbors. They would reject their place as a set-apart nation, immediately going back on their word. God was coming down on them again, such that Ezra 10 verse 1 says, While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down, before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. Why were they weeping bitterly? Because God's kingdom program was not coming yet. These things were not going to happen. And as you read Ezra and Nehemiah, it is somewhat victorious, but it very much has the flavor of a letdown, because all the things promised to the new kingdom didn't happen. So God's kingdom program isn't coming yet. That'll come later. It'll come to a later generation. And Isaiah 56, all the way to the end of the book, describes this coming kingdom program. And so God gives a, a general encouragement in these first two verses to be a law keeper, to be righteous before the Lord. Now, for the person under the old covenant, the most characterized way that they could keep the law, that what characterized their law keeping the most was keeping the Sabbath. The Sabbath was the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. And if you were a Sabbath keeper, I don't mean in the Pharisaical sense that we find in the Gospels. I mean in the sense of one who truly loves the Lord and wants to obey not only the letter, but the spirit of the law. That meant you had a heart of love and devotion to the Lord because your keeping of Sabbath was your act of love, your response to your own personal salvation. It was authentic, genuine faith. Now, obviously, this isn't an admonition to us today to keep Sabbath law, but the principle is still the same, that your genuineness of faith is confirmed by the obedient life that you lead. That's always been the same. Uh, James 2, verse 14 says, what, it, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And the implied answer is, no, it's false faith. And so God encourages the faithful, be obedient, show your faith to be genuine. In fact, Israel is not to think that she alone is the heir to God's kingdom. And God gives encouragement to two formerly inferior groups as examples of how God is going to extend his grace to all who would ask for it. The first example he gives is foreigners. 
God told Moses and Aaron in Exodus 12 that no foreigner shall eat of the Passover. Israel is a set-apart nation. They are different. They are distinct. They are unique. But now in God's overall kingdom plan, he says in chapter 53, verse 56, verse 3, rather, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. What does it take to be included in God's kingdom program, to join themselves to the Lord, to demonstrate that true faith? We see it in verse 6. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant. This is somebody who's all in. This is somebody who loves Yahweh and says, I want to be all that God would call me to be, to be a law keeper because I love the Lord. They give a second example of two formerly inferior groups. And the second one is how God extends his grace to all who would ask. And this example are the eunuchs. The eunuchs, they're given as this example of graciousness. Men whose reproductive ability has been literally cut off, been removed. 2 Kings 20 indicates that some of the men taken captive by Babylon would be castrated. It was a very common practice in the ancient Near East. It was to ensure that slaves didn't have children, that they didn't get distracted by romantic interests. And so for a Jewish man, I mean, think about this. In a society where family was everything and sons and daughters are your heritage and they are the reason for your existence, they're your future, to be a eunuch basically meant you've been excluded from the covenant blessings of God. You've been excluded. As a matter of fact, to demonstrate the pure set-apart nature of Israel, Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, in graphic terms that I won't read to you from this pulpit, decrees that no eunuch will be permitted into the corporate worship gathering of Israel. That's not God being mean. It's simply him saying, I have standards and you will maintain those standards. To be a eunuch meant in human terms that you have no future. You have no lasting legacy. But God says to them, those who demonstrate true saving faith by keeping the law, in verse 5, he promises to give them within the kingdom a monument and a name that's better than sons and daughters. And what is that monument? It's a permanent place, he says, in my house. You don't have a family of your own? How about this? You be part of God's family. That's the monument. Verse 5 says that they will be given an everlasting name, and there's an irony here, that shall not be cut off, shall not be taken away. And so to the outcasts of the world, those like the foreigner, those like the eunuch, look what the Lord will do. In verse 7, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. And we would translate this, of course, to a new covenant setting that the the sacrifice of Christ will be accepted on their behalf. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. You may recognize part of verse 7, Jesus quoted from verse 7 when he cleansed the temple. He declared that his father's house was a house of prayer, a place where sinful men could receive forgiveness from God. And what's the context? It's a house of prayer for all nations. And just to make sure the point was clear that God would receive those who were formerly cast out like the foreigners and the eunuchs, 
Who does God miraculously save at the very beginning of church history? In Acts chapter 8, he saves a court official from the, uh, from the country of Ethiopia who is a foreigner and a eunuch. And he fulfills Isaiah 56 perfectly. Listen, the kingdom of God will not primarily be made up from a human standpoint of those who are the high and mighty and the so-called most likelies. Because the election of the saints is most often occurring among the least likelies. That's where, the, where election happens. Paul said this in no uncertain terms in 1 Corinthians 1. He said, beginning in verse 26, he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. In fact, those who think they're the most likely are arrogant and self-righteous and won't be invited to the kingdom. They won't be invited. In fact, Jesus illustrated the calling of the outcasts as being the actual most likelies. In Luke 14, he told a parable of a great banquet given by an important wealthy man. And this represents the coming kingdom. Many were invited, and likely he's talking specifically about ethnic Israel, but the guests made excuses, and they wouldn't come to the banquet for this reason or that reason. I'm busy. I can't make it tonight. So the servant who had done the inviting on behalf of the master, he told him that the invited guests wouldn't come. And man, the master was mad. He was upset. And so Luke 14 records, so the master came and reported these, the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, sir, What you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. And if I could add this, filled with outcasts. I love that. I've been a pastor for a long time, and I've seen the Church of Jesus Christ. And we're kind of a motley bunch. We're kind of a crew of people that have been down this road and that road and don't have everything all together. That's who God is filling his kingdom with. In your prayers for the coming division of mankind, pray for the outcasts to be brought in. And I think that you're going to be amazed in the future kingdom at how the kings and queens that reign alongside Jesus Christ are those who were the most trouble and the biggest drains on society. How glorious is it going to be when the restored and saved, severely mentally disabled are reigning with Christ? How glorious is it going to be when the restored and saved so-called hopeless cases like prostitutes and thieves and murderers, when the restored and saved homeless and drug users and drug dealers are elevated to perfection to such magnificent, shining brilliance that we would think them to be Christ themselves if we didn't know better. By the way, a little side sidebar of application for us, as we pray for the outcast to be brought in, it reminds us of James 2. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. 
For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, your church, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in the good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? The first request to make of the Lord as we pray for the coming division of mankind is for the outcasts to be brought in. Here's another request that we ought to pray, and that is for false shepherds to be taken out. For false shepherds to be taken out. Isaiah is very likely writing this part of his prophecy at the end of his ministry. And this would be during the reign of wicked King Manasseh. Let me just read you a little from 2 Kings 21 about Manasseh. The Lord said to his servants, the prophets, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and done things more evil than all the Amorites did who were before him and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. And then he goes on to talk about how he's going to wipe Judah like a dish. He's going to turn it upside down. Then he says, Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another besides the sin that he made Judah to sin, so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. I mean, Manasseh led Judah into spiritual darkness of an unparalleled nature, including human sacrifice. Just ridiculously evil things. And in the midst of this, he martyred the true believers in the Lord. He killed them by the thousands. And how did he perpetuate this evil? By allowing and placing in leadership false religious leaders and false political leaders. To have them run the show. And so when we get to verse 9 here, God's mood as it is changes. All of a sudden, he becomes very, very distinctive in his judgment. Verse 9, all you beasts of the field come to devour, all you beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind. They are all without knowledge. They are all silent dogs. They cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber, The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough, but they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink, and and tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. The righteous man perishes, and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away, while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds, who walk in their uprightness. But you draw near, sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are not your children of transgression the offspring of deceit, you who burn with lust among the oaks, under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys, under the clefts of the rocks. Among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion. They, they are your lot. To them you have poured out a drink offering. You have brought a grain offering. Shall I relent for these things? On a high and lofty mountain you have set your bed, and you, there you went up to offer sacrifice. Behind the door and the doorpost, you have set up your memorial for deserting me. You have uncovered your bed. You have gone up to it. You have made it wide. You have made a covenant for yourself with them. You have loved their bed. You have looked on their nakedness. You journeyed to the king with oil and multiplied your perfumes. You sent your envoys far off and sent down even to Sheol. 
You were wearied by the length of your way, but you did not say it is hopeless. You found new life for your strength, and so you were not faint. Whom did you dread and fear so that you lied and did not remember me and did not lay it to heart? Have I not held my peace even for a long time and you do not fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away. And so in chapter 56, verse 9, God invites the beasts, the foreign invaders, to devour Israel for her sin. And Israel's rebellion is largely due to her pathetic, self-serving leaders, the watchmen and the shepherds of verses 10 and 11. What were the leaders of Israel like, the spiritual leaders, the political leaders, both of whom were supposed to point the people to the true and living God? Well, we can see what they're like here. Verse 10, they're ignorant. They're blind. They're without knowledge. They can't lead the way to salvation because they don't know it themselves. In fact, Jesus coined a phrase that we still use today in his excoriation of Israel leaders. He says in Matthew fifteen fourteen, and I'm paraphrasing, that you're like the blind leading the blind. So they're, they're ignorant, they're blind. Verse 10, they're people pleasers. These are silent dogs who cannot bark. What does that mean? Well, they're supposed to sound the alarm for holiness, sound the alarm against sin, but instead they don't warn, they don't confront sin. Verse 10, they're spiritually lazy. They don't sense a spiritual battle. They don't have a sense of urgency. Instead, they're dreaming, they're lying down, they're loving to slumber. Verse 11, they're greedy. They see their role as leaders as a means to great personal gain. I mean, what is it that disgusts us about leadership more than anything? It's corruption. And yet that's what's happening here at the highest levels. They have a mighty appetite for their own gain. In verse 12, they're arrogant. They believe they deserve great treatment, wine and strong drink, since tomorrow will be like this day. God will never bring judgment to us. All will always go well. In fact, they're the opposite of the spiritual shepherds that God's people need. God's people don't need ignorant shepherds. They need knowledgeable shepherds who spend vast quantities of time absorbing truth. God's people don't need people-pleasing shepherds. They need God-pleasing shepherds who will be the dogs that bark at sin. That is the job of the shepherd. God's people don't need lazy shepherds, but diligent shepherds who treat their calling with dignity and the sobriety that is appropriate God's people don't need greedy shepherds who fleece people to gain great wealth, but shepherds who are hungry for a sanctified church. And God's people don't need arrogant shepherds, but broken, humble shepherds who know that we will give an account to the Lord. So these men are the opposite of everything good about shepherding. And in Manasseh's day, when he was killing the faithful, a bloodbath of true worshipers, the only peace for the true believer was found in death Chapter 57, verse 1, the righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. No one cares. Devout men are taken away while no one understands for the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. And listen, the, the political and spiritual leaders of Israel, they're not just bad office holders and bad preachers. It's not just that they're unskilled. They're wicked to the core. They refuse to trust the Lord both religiously and politically. Religiously, what were they leading people to do? 
Verse 3, they're called sons of sorceresses. They're engaged in witchcraft, black magic. They're calling upon demonic powers disguised as Canaanite gods, such as Baal and Astra and Molech and Chemosh. Verses 4 and 5, they're engaging in sexual immorality as part of ecstatic religious rites among what verse 5 says, they, they lust among the oaks or wide out, widespread trees in which they perform these pagan rituals. In the verse 5, they're engaged in human and in child sacrifice. Jeremiah 19 verse 5 says, They built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come into my mind. They're burning their own children alive. In verse 6, they worship stone idols, the smooth stones, that they would find a rock in a stream and say, Look how smooth it is. It must be a god. Just to give you a feel for how wicked the religious leaders of Israel were, what they were doing had no resemblance to biblical Judaism, none. What it did resemble was ancient Druid practices in Britain and France, which were happening at the same time. Let me tell you about the Druids. They were an upper, upper middle class religion among the ancient Celtic peoples. They acted as priests and teachers and judges. They acted as religious leaders for all the tribes of Britain and France. In fact, the Celtic word druid means knowing or finding the oak trees because they would do their sacred ceremonies in these groves of oak trees and they included the practice of ritualistic sex acts to create supposed magic power and they would do human sacrifice on a regular basis. In fact, what the Druids would do is create these 40 to 50 foot tall wicker models of a man and then fill it with human beings and burn it as a sacrifice. In other words, if the religious leaders of Judah traveled across the sea and landed in Britain and met some Druids, they would say, hey, we kind of understand each other, don't we? Completely, completely rebellious against the Lord. How were they rebellious politically? Judah refused to trust the Lord. In Isaiah's day, the kings of Judah often tried to make alliances with other nations rather than trust the Lord. They tried to make alliances with Assyria, with Judah, with, uh, or with Egypt, with other nations. And Isaiah pictures this as political adultery. Why are you trusting other nations instead of just trusting the Lord? Verses 7 and 8 of chapter 57 pictures Judah as climbing into bed with other nations. They'll do anything. They'll bring tribute. They'll bring gifts. And sometimes it even costs the lives of the ambassadors that they would send. In verse 9, you journeyed to the king with oil and multiplied your perfumes. You sent your envoys far off and sent down even to Sheol. Even at the cost of lives, you would do this. But they wouldn't relent. They wouldn't give up. They wouldn't say, okay, we're surrounded by enemies. It's hopeless. We must turn to the Lord. They wouldn't do it. Verse 10, you were wearied by the length of your way, but you did not say it is hopeless. You found new life for your strength, and so you were not faint. In other words, they found false hope in other nations. Listen, they were so afraid of conquest that they decided to hedge their bets. They decided to say, we trust the Lord, but to look for other ways to be protected. It was a lie. And God reminds them that even 
as you're lying about me and lying about your faith. Haven't I been so patient with you? Haven't I been kind to you? Verse 11, whom did you dread and fear so that you lied and did not remember me, did not lay it to heart? Have I not held my peace even for a long time and you do not fear me? How patient he's been. But ultimately, Judah would do anything except trust the Lord to gain salvation and safety. And all of her efforts, all of her so-called self-righteousness would get her nowhere. And now God is pictured as reading off a condemnation, reading all the attempted efforts of Judah to save herself, and it's all for nothing. He says in verse 12, I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. You can't do anything to be saved except trust me. And so God says to the leaders, to the shepherds of Israel, the Israelites, he says, fine, let your new gods protect you. See if they can. And he says in verse 13, the winds will carry them all off. These wicked leaders are the very ones who should have been leading people to call on the name of the Lord. This past Resurrection Sunday happened to fall on April Fool's Day. And boy, were some people fooled thinking that they would receive truth. Instead, they were duped. One large church here in our own town this past Easter Sunday had a giant set of a game show and preached an Easter message mixed in with game show contestants coming down essentially to make one point. And this point was revealed in the pastor, and I use the word extremely loosely in his closing prayer. In his closing prayer, he said that there are people who need to, quote, change the way they're living because they need God and they need a change in their lives. And then he led them somewhere, some room off to the side, to what he called seal the deal. And what did he mean by seal the deal? Well, he defined it as stop doing bad things and start doing good things. Live a Christian lifestyle. Change your own life. And I made a note of all the things that never got mentioned. Sin, Christ, his death. And on Easter Sunday, failed to mention his resurrection. No explanation of the judicial position of condemnation before God that has to be changed. And they were called to make a lifestyle change without more than a passing reference to Christ. This is what John spoke of in 1 John 4, 3. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Second John 7, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one as the deceiver and the Antichrist. So this heretic, and he is a heretic because he does not believe in the deity of Christ, the deity of the Holy Spirit, or salvation by grace alone. This heretic is calling people to a colorful game show set. And I would contrast that with the Apostle Paul who said in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what a shepherd does. But remember this, there will be a day when God, as it were, whistles and calls the beasts to come take out the false shepherds. And we are to pray to that end, pray 
that God would be merciful. Every time God raises up a faithful shepherd in the church of Jesus Christ, you should be thankful for that. Every time a local church ordains a man of God to go out into the world and to proclaim the gospel, you should be thankful for that. That is a mercy from God. And every time that the Lord shuts down a false shepherd, that is a mercy as well. Pray today for the protection of the church's pulpits and pray today for tomorrow's great cleansing for the false shepherds to be taken out. What a great day that will be. Let me give you one more request to make of the Lord as we pray for the coming division of mankind. This won't take long. This is really the the logical outcome of division. And here's our third request. For genuine faith in Christ to take hold. For genuine faith in Christ to take hold. Look with me at the middle of verse 13 of chapter 57. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of the unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. The Holy Spirit continues and will continue to move in the heart of some that those Jews in particular and Gentiles in in general, that's us, we're the outcasts, that we will find our sole refuge in the Lord and ultimately will be the possessors of God's future inheritance. That not only will God's people of Israel be, be physically enabled to return, they'll be spiritually enabled as well. We see this in verse 14. It shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. They will come home both spiritually and physically. But I want you to notice here what the true believer possesses. This is like a little miniature lesson on the doctrines of grace. What does the true believer possess? First, a high view of God. A high view of God, verse 15, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. The true believer possesses a high view of God. Second, the true believer possesses a biblical view of man. He has a biblical view of man. This sounds like our Grace Connect class. Second half of verse 15, and and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. So the true believer has a high view of man, a high view of God, a biblical view of man. The true believer also has a high view of the gospel. What is verse 15 a picture of? It's a picture of repentance. It's a picture of repentance. And by the way, it's a picture of Believing in grace as the sole means of salvation. Verse 16, I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the Spirit would grow faint before me, the breath of life that I had just made. That's God saying, I'll relent. I will not judge. I'll show grace. Verse 18, I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners. 
The salvation is a work of God. So we have a true believer who has a high view of God, a biblical view of man, a high view of the gospel, believing in grace. What else does he have? He has a belief in obedience as evidence of true saving faith. Verse 19, creating the fruit of the lips. Jesus said that out of a clean heart comes clean speech. Out of a dirty heart comes dirty speech. True believer has a high view of God, a biblical view of man, a high view of the gospel, including a belief in grace, a belief in obedience. And he believes in justification. He believes in justification. He's received the imputed righteousness of God himself. Peace, peace to the near, to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. What is the peace that God gives? It is peace between man and God. It is justification given that we are viewed as holy as Christ is. And this is important to understand that the doctrines of grace are essentially set out before us here because to these that we would pray for genuine faith, genuine salvation, genuine belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. He ends this section with a warning. It's a stern warning. Verse 20 But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. I will never see you as righteous, and you will pay the price. Well, by now, you've probably heard some of the same themes repeated continually in Isaiah. And my my view is if God wants to repeat something countless times, that's his business. And it's not my job to save you from that. We are to have that repetition. The gospel saturates scripture and the future kingdom saturates Isaiah. And if the Lord wants us to hear it over and over again, then so be it. I can easily assert that kingdom prayer should be an important part of our prayer life because kingdom focus is an important part of Isaiah. And the Lord Jesus himself told us to pray to let the kingdom of God come. And so in our prayer for the coming division of mankind, if I could just by way of reminder tell you to pray for the outcasts to be brought in, pray for the false shepherds to be taken out, and pray for genuine faith in Christ to take hold. Well, let me just give you a sneak peek what we're going to do to finish this series. We're going to talk about praying for repentance and mercy, praying for the golden age of Israel, praying for the king's agenda, praying for the king's return, praying for softened hearts to the gospel, praying for God's answers to prayer. Yes, we're going to have an example of praying for your prayers. And then pray for the coming division of mankind repeated again. And that's how Isaiah ends, is praying for the coming division of mankind. And so we'll return to that theme one more time. And that takes us to the end of Isaiah. Does that sound good? All right. Our Father, we thank you so much for this beautiful text, which is so clear. What What a... joy to see the scriptural basis from which Jesus would tell the the parable of the weeds, the parable of the wheat and tares. He knew Isaiah 56 and 57 perfectly. He already knows your plan and he knows fully that he will be the instrument of that division. That to many he will be savior, but to most he will be judge. And so, Lord, I want to pray in particular as we've applied this text to our own lives in the context of prayer. I want to pray, Lord, for the saints here at
Grace Bible Church, we gather here together, Lord, to walk together until the kingdom does come, to encourage one another, to exhort each other, and I pray for our prayers. I pray, Lord, that we would move beyond simply praying for the physical needs and praying for our own griefs and sorrows and praying for prosperity and praying for things and stuff and for families and so forth. Those are all good things to pray for. But I pray you would elevate our prayers to look beyond the horizon, to look to the coming of Christ, to look to the coming kingdom and to obey his admonition to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And with that, we would thank you and we would praise you for your word, which is so clear to us. All in the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.